0: Smarties, today we are welcoming graphic novelist Raina Telgemeier to the podcast, and we are so excited. She is the author of many books, including The Redone Babysitter's Club, which we absolutely love. Today she talks about her love of comics and how she came to write The Babysitter's Club and her other works that are just as amazing. She's a number one New York Times bestselling author, and Raina relates to so many of the learners in educational therapy, and her books cultivate a love of reading in reluctant learners, and we've seen that in both of our practices. So if you have a reluctant reader, please reach out to us. It would be great for your child to start educational therapy. You can find us at my practice, which is myedtherapist, www.myedtherapist.com, and Rachel's practice, which is CAP Ed Therapy Group kapp com. Let's dig in. You want to learn
1: faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast.
0: Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 146 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Stephanie Pitts. And I'm Rachel Kapp. And today, we are so excited to welcome Raina Telgemeier to the podcast with us. Welcome, Raina. Thank you both for having me. We've been
1: excited about having you on. We talked a little bit off air about why it was so exciting for us. But before we sort of dig into that, can you share a little bit about who you are and what you do?
2: Yeah, I'm a graphic novelist and... For the layperson, that means I make long-form comic books. I've been drawing comics since I was about nine years old. My first book was published in 2006, and it was an adaptation of Anna Martin's The Babysitter's Club. And I did four books in that series before turning over to personal stories, memoir, some fiction work, and I've created five original graphic novels published starting in 2010 with the book Smile, And I've done two companion books to that book. I don't consider them sequels necessarily, but they're companions. Hmm. And then two fiction books called Drama and Ghosts. And I love what I do. I live in Northern California. I have two cats. Uh, Where else should I go with this? (laughs) Or should I let you guys ask me questions?
1: (laughs) We are so excited about the Babysitter's Club. Steph, do you want to share that story that you shared off
0: air? Babysitters Club is very special to Rachel and to me. We had to do some sort of interview and we got asked separately what our favorite book was growing up. And we both said Babysitters Club. And then we both sat there and said, Well, you can't say Babysitters Club if I said <laughs> Babysitters Club. And then we both agreed we could both say it because it was true. It truly was our favorite. And I've known for a couple of years, but I didn't know back then that you had redone it when I saw it, I thought, oh my gosh, this is brilliant. Going back to educational therapy, the reason that I felt like the Babysitter's Club was even more important to me, besides the fact that I just loved it growing up, was I have a client who was a reluctant reader. And she was in fourth grade and just didn't want to read anything. It was very hard for her. And I said, "Okay." Let's read this book. You'll read it, and I'll read it. We'll read it together. We each had a copy, and she started reading it, and she loved it. And because of that, she is now an avid reader. So this book sort of opened the floodgates of loving to read and loving to learn more for her. And I know that her story isn't unique and I feel like it was probably like that for me as well with The Babysitter's Club. So I know there's other kids out there. This book could do the exact same thing, especially the little girls and boys who like babysitting and like taking care of little kids, which is something that I always love doing. It's everything, right? This is who you wanted to be. You wanted to be in the cool club and have The Babysitter's Club. Yeah, so... That's why those books were so
1: special mm-hmm. because you could relate to all the characters and well, yeah they were stereotypes in the way that the women from Sex and the City are stereotypes but yeah totally you can relate to them and those were special books so I'm curious first of all Reina how does it feel to hear the direct yeah story that your book transformed somebody's relationship with language and reading. And then also I'm curious about what your relationship was with the Babysitter's Club or as us in the Cool Kids Club called it BSC, (laughs) what your relationship with BSC was before you adopted them.
2: I mean, as far as what it feels like to hear that a kid who didn't like to read picked something up and got a few pages in and then couldn't stop, I know that feeling because that's how it felt when I read my first comics too. I was a pretty good reader and I liked reading just fine, but something about discovering comics, it just opened up a door for me as far as creativity and like communication and combining things that I already loved, which was pictures and words and putting them together in a way that not just entertained me, but made me laugh and made me think and made me want to make my own. It was just so powerful. So I really relate to that kid. And I'm grateful that I can kind of be a part of that cycle of giving forward and giving them something that they can get excited about. And maybe they'll, you know, pass that on in a few generations. I sure hope so. Mm -hmm. I was nine years old when the Babysitter's Club was first published. And it was just the hot thing in my classroom. And everybody was ordering the box sets from the Scholastic Book Club's newsletter. (laughs) And it was just the thing. And so I was like, I want to be in on the thing. What's the thing? Everybody's talking about this thing. And so I ordered the box set and read the first four, you know, in an instant. And then was like, okay, where's the next book? And I don't think that Anne had intended to write past four books. I think it was just supposed to be a little miniseries. But you know, millions of girls like me and like you out there were just hungry for more. And so Scholastic was like, okay, cha-ching, like we've got a phenomenon on our hands. And I know that she didn't personally write every single one of the 120 books in the series or all the spinoffs, but she did outline them and she did work really closely with her writers and As a result, the books were able to be published like once a month or something for years. Really? Yeah. It might've been every two or three months, but they were on like a schedule. And so as a young gracious reader, that was just the best thing. You know, my dad would take me to the bookstore like every weekend and we'd look to see if there was a new one out. And it helped my relationship with my dad. And then my mom started reading them too, because she wanted to be a parent who was aware of what her kids were reading and wanted to be able to talk to me about, you know, characters and storylines and stuff. And she got really into it too. I've never asked my mom who her favorite character was, but I guess I should. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Who was your favorite character? It's funny because when I was nine, I looked exactly like Christy. She was described in the book as the way that I dressed. It was like, she's a tomboy. She puts her in (laughs) her ponytail. She wears a turtleneck. And I just looked at myself and I was like, how is this character me? Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. I was more of a shy kid. Like she's a real extrovert and outspoken, but she's got this kind of twitchy energy and this inability to sit still and she's constantly coming up with ideas. And so I'm really related to her. And when I started working on the graphic novels, which was 20 years later, I was able to kind of put some of my own personal quirks into her character. Like for example, She leans back in her chair and kind of kicks her feet a lot. (laughs) That's always something that I've done. Like I have a really hard time just sitting still. So maybe me and Christy kind of embody the same (laughs) space (laughs) in my own universe. I liked Dawn as well. Dawn was cool Mm -hmm. because she was from California. California, You guys (laughs) know what I'm talking Mm -hmm. about here. It's Mm -hmm. And it was it was kind of like that alone was her brand. Like, well, she's from California. Yeah, so she's cool. With the
1: blonde hair, very surfer. Yes. I don't have blonde
2: hair. I don't like tofu. I'm not a surfer. Like everything (laughs) that a stereotypical Californian was, I guess Dawn was, and I was not, but that brand, that stamp on her still felt (laughs) familiar. I like them all. There's really no character that I don't like. And when I started working on the adaptations. I found myself relating to kind of their inner worlds in totally new ways. And okay, here's my example. <laughs> I didn't feel like I had that much in common with Stacy when I was a kid. Stacey is glamorous. She's mature. She's from New York. She wears fancy clothing. And I just kind of wrote her off as being sophisticated in a way that me and Christy were not. We're just like country bumpkins. But then when I went and read Stacy's work, later on to adapt it into comics, I was like, oh my gosh, no, Stacy's actually the most vulnerable of all the girls. She has the most to lose. She still sleeps with a teddy bear. She's been abandoned by people and she's had to uproot and like leave her life behind. And so I just felt this like wave of sympathy for her. And at the time I was living in New York too. So I also felt like the New York connection and was able to kind of infuse some of the place into her story. and just after working on that book, I was like, I love Stacy so much and she's the best. And so yeah, it, it was such a fun project in that regard just to get closer to the characters in ways that I would never have expected to do when I was a kid. Yeah, so yeah, my relationship is really deep and yes <laughs> and really special. and uh, just just being a part of this whole project has been such a special experience
0: for me.
1: I want to ask how the project sort of came about. But Steph, I want to know from you, who did you relate to?
0: You know, I don't know that I related to one of them. I think I had little bits of all of them. Some Christy. I wanted to be cool like Claudia, and I wasn't. Mm. I was shy. I don't think that I ever really thought, like, that's me. Mm. You? I think I was a Christy.
1: In that, I always had an idea. I'm still sort of that way. Yeah, you are. But I wanted to be Stacy. I wanted to be cool. I thought Don was cool too. I probably related more to Marianne because I was quite bookish, <laughs> but I wasn't shy. But also, Marianne was the only one who had a boyfriend for a long time, mm, right? So, like, right, I thought oh. she was cool for that. And so, I did not relate to Claudia's creativity. I didn't either. I like admired that but didn't feel like I had it within myself. And then Dawn, I liked too, but I wasn't blonde and I just wasn't like that. And none of the kids I grew up with were really like that, but maybe if we'd grown up in Malibu, it would have been different. (laughs) But Okay. So how did it come about? Well, let's see. Let's go back to approximately
2: 2003, 2004. I was part of like the indie comics scene in New York City at the time. I had just graduated from the School of Visual Arts and I was working on self published comics and all of my spare time. And I went to a lot of comic conventions. I went to like San Diego Comic Con and I went to the Small Press Expo in Washington, DC and Ape in San Francisco. And there were just a lot of opportunities at the time for like indie people to kind of share what they were doing and form friendships and alliances. And at the time, the big publishers were starting to notice that comics were kind of coming back. And I think that had a lot to do with like the manga boom Mm -hmm. that had happened in the United States. And so a lot of kids were seeking out manga and graphics, which is Scholastic's Comics imprint, was formed. It was officially launched in 2005, But in the early aughts, they were kind of scouting around for talent and they were looking for people to publish. And they found my work just through the scene and through coming to, you know, small press conventions and stuff. And they bought some of my mini comics. They were like, these are really cool. Like, we would love for you to come in and pitch something to us. And what I was doing at the time was kind of like introspective, short form diary comics. Mm. And I mean, that's what I've been doing most of my life, but I was publishing them and putting them out there. And I was like, well, I don't know if this is really what you're looking for, but this is what I do. And I pitched a couple of projects to them and nothing was quite right. And they asked me just the same question you guys were asked. Like, so what was your favorite book when you were a kid? Mm. And my answer was, it was the Babysitter's Club. And David Saylor, who is the head of graphics, his eyes lit up and he was like, you know, that's our book. We own the rights to that. And what if you took your work and your style and you did an adaptation of the Babysitter's Club and it just kind of came together.
0: Oh, I got chills. How cool. Did your head
1: explode? (laughs) Um, You couldn't believe that this opportunity was happening? Yeah. (laughs) Because at the time, you know, graphic novels weren't really
2: a thing. And so the idea that a children's book publisher, as big as Scholastic, could put out my, you know, little dinky comics work and like sell it to kids and put it into libraries and book fairs was just inconceivable. Mm -hmm. This template did not exist. And so when I was in school, like it wasn't even something I knew I could aspire to because it just did not exist. And then suddenly it did, but I didn't have expectations because, Again, nothing to aspire to. Just like, okay, let's try that. Let's see what happens. Right. So we did. The first book came out in 2006. We did two the first year and then two each subsequent year after that. So for four years, that was my full-time gig. And I was still working on personal comics on the side. And that's where my book Smile was born from, just kind of in my spare time as I was developing those other projects. So you know, I mean, I've been a cartoonist all my life. So it was just like, cool. I'm actually doing the thing that I love to do and I'm getting paid to do it. This is a dream come true. But we didn't know how it would be perceived. We didn't know if like fans who were our age were going to embrace it. If kids were going to embrace it. Right. In the beginning, it just, it didn't really look like anything else that was out there on the shelves. Mm -hmm. So manga fans would pick it up and they'd be like, well, it doesn't look like manga. So we're not interested. And some of the old school babysitters club bands from like you know from the internet, there was a big live journal community that I was a part of at the time live journal. A lot of them were super cool and like embraced it. I know <laughs> this is how long ago this was. yeah, but there were definitely people that were like, "Don't come in here, you random person, and mess Aww. with my babysitters club. like this isn't what it's supposed to be. Why are they drawings? This is so babyish." And it just it didn't quite find its footing. It took a few years for that to happen, but. Eventually, it did. And then, after my other books got published and became super popular, the Babysitter's Club kind of came back in popularity as well. Right. So, they have since hired new artists to adapt the books. And that's been really fun for me, too, to just kind of sit back and be like, now I'm just a fan. And now I just yeah. get to enjoy these as a consumer and like cheer on the new artists.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Did you get the opportunity to meet Anna Martin? I did. That was my question. (laughs) What was she
2: like? She's so nice. I worked through a liaison with her on the first project and she didn't give too much feedback. She was pretty hands-off, but she would say things like, Claudia would never wear that outfit. Or she would point out things like, you know, the kids are just walking into this house. Like, the babysitter would be the one to have the key in her hand and she would open the door before, you know, a little boy wow. just like wow. turned the doorknob. So she's super specific, tuned in and aware of like yeah. what happens in this world and things that I wouldn't think of. So she gave feedback like that. And then when the first book was finally out, I got to have lunch with her and our editor, our liaison, David. And she, it was It wasn't like suddenly we shared a brain, but suddenly we were coming at the conversation from the point of view of two people who have made something mutually. And I was able to say to her, I think what was going through Christy's head was this. And she was like, oh, that's really interesting. I hadn't considered it. So I think she felt like I got it. Like I wasn't there to change things or to update it or to make it different I just you know I was that kid just like both of you were who loved the characters and wanted to be as faithful to them as they could yeah she's a sweetheart and she's continued to be a sweetheart and I sent her a drawing that's on the title page of the first book where it's the girls that they're sitting on a bed. And that image is an homage to the very first cover that was published in 1986.
1: Yeah, The girls are
2: in the same position. You know, they're not wearing the same exact clothes, but I did an homage piece and it's the inside front cover of my first graphic novel. And she said she put it on her wall next to that painting of that original book. So now they're side by side. So I know, I was like,
1: sweet. it's like, so nice. <laughs> it's so, it gave me chills. It's so sweet and supportive. Yeah. Yes, I remember that
0: picture. Yeah, I'm holding it up because you guys can't see, but I'm holding it up because <laughs> I have it in front of me. And I do remember that picture as well. And you know what? One of the things is when I went through and was reading this book, there were things that I love that you didn't change. And the kid that I was reading it with, she was like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I feel old, but like, I'm glad, you know, I had to explain it to her. It was, it was fantastic. From my kid, let's call her M. M would like to know, what was your favorite book that you wrote?
2: It's really hard to choose a single book. I've got five originals and then the four adaptations of the BSC. Mm-hmm. That's nine books that I have spent intimate time with and, you know, hours and hours like with the characters and with all of the emotions. And so they're all really personal to me and really dear to me. Smile is my first original. I think that's probably why that book will always be the closest. And interestingly, like I wrote that book just in my spare time and it was a personal project, like a side hustle and I didn't have an editor. So I was just kind of making it and working on it. And all of my books since then have been under the supervision of an editor. So I have like sat down to write the script and then sent it to her. And then she's edited the script. And we've we've done it kind of the more traditional way. And, you know, I don't start the artwork until the script is done. Oh, that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah. With Smile, I was just making a page a week and just like tossing it up on a website and letting people read it as it was coming together so I think for that reason, it, it's like the purest expression of what I make when no one's looking.
0: <laughs> if that makes any sense, that's awesome. Yeah, it does.
2: <laughs> Pure me from you know 2005. <laughs> but yeah, still, yeah, right, right. And that's not to say that I think it's the best book that I've ever written. I think that my work has gotten stronger under my editor's supervision. She's a fantastic editor, and she's she's really tuned into. Not only what I want to say, but but how I'm saying it and how it's going to come across and how the kids are going to interpret it. And yeah, I mean, we've been working together since two thousand and seven, I think. So it's a really
1: So you get each other
2: and yeah. Good and long-tailed relationship that I super value. So
1: Yes. There's nothing like the feedback of somebody else that you trust. Right. Through a process. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about smile? Because this one Touched my soul for very personal reasons, (laughs) but I would love for you to share a little bit about it for you.
2: Yeah, it's a memoir, which means that it's my true story. And the true story is that when I was 11 years old, I had an accident where I tripped and fell and knocked out my two front permanent teeth, and then had to spend the next four and a half years getting my face reconstructed and you know going through multiple surgeries, headgear braces on, braces off, fake teeth. And I thought in the beginning that it was just going to be sort of an explainer of what had happened to me because I had told that story so many times over the years. This is what happened. This is what happened next. It was crazy. This followed that. And no one could ever really believe the story. And I just felt like, because the way I tell stories is through comics, at some point, I'm just going to sit down and write the whole thing out. And I'm just going to tell it. And I didn't realize that it was also going to be an examination of how I felt during those years and what it was like to feel uncertain about yourself and about the way you look and, you know, just about being in middle school, which is such a hard time anyway. So hard. And how it would kind of affect my social dynamics and the pecking order of people and people teasing me and having to sort of come through that and say, this is not okay. And who I am is not what I look like. And then when I was finished, I was kind of like, whoa, (laughs) what just happened? That was cool. I'm so glad that I was able to pour so much of myself into this book. And I spent five years working on it. Oh, wow. At first, it was the side hustle while I was working on Babysitter's Club. And then the last year of its production, Scholastic, had offered to publish the book. So I switched gears and just worked on Smile full-time for the final year. And then it came out in 2010. Again, like the graphic novel movement was kind of starting to happen in the United States. There were a few breakout successes. The Baby Mouse series by the home siblings was really popular. And manga was still completely, obscenely popular. And, you know, the Babysitter's Club books had been out for a little while. So people were familiar with my name and they were like, okay, well, we liked the Babysitter's Club books. We'll go by Smile. And it just exploded and I didn't see it coming, but it seems like that was when people sort of say that like the graphic novels for kids boom really started was around that time. And it wasn't a huge success at retail right off the gate. It was a success at the Scholastic Book Fairs, Mm. and Scholastic Book Clubs. And word of mouth with the kids got out and kids just started passing it to one another and recommending it to one another. And eventually, you know, the rest of the world kind of caught on. So it didn't happen overnight, but Smile just changed things (laughs) for me and for for
0: publishing. And I think for a lot of kids, I mean, (laughs) Smile was the summer reading one of my clients had to read. This is why I read it in the first place. So you know, it's getting assigned as this is your summer reading book. So you have to read it. And because graphic novels are now getting the attention of reluctant readers mm-hmm. and kids, you know, to love to read and to love to learn is what we do and what we help get the kids to want. And for M, for example, she wanted all of your books. <laughs> and so she was like, look what I got for Christmas. You know, Aww. it was just... The kids love them. And if they're willing to read a graphic novel, parents, absolutely let them.
2: That's what I always say. I was a kid who liked to read comics and I was reading comic strips in the newspaper. That's pretty much what was available to me at the time, but it sparked my interest. And I collected, you know, every year, like the new Calvin and Hobbes book is out and I would just read it over and over and I would try to write my own comics. And then you can finish a graphic novel pretty fast. <laughs> so I get a lot of kids that are really excited. They're like, I read your book in a whole hour. And I'm like, it's took me five years to make that book. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you it a second time or please, you know, but, <laughs> but now there's so many other graphic novels out there. And I think you can probably read like all the graphic novels on the shelf at Barnes and Noble within like, Two weeks, Yeah, probably. And then, but you've got the bugs. So now you're going to look at the next shelf and you're going to be interested in like some of the hybrid books and maybe some of the prose books. And
0: a hundred percent, it just opens the door. It, it gets the itch going and then you got to scratch that itch. I'm so grateful for you that you have done that for these kids because it also makes my job easier. <laughs> yes. I know it's going to be a hit. Cause you have to be a little careful, right? You don't want to put something out there that the kid's not going to like. And then like, how are you going to get them to try again? Like, I know this <laughs> is going to work. So I appreciate you for that. And it works
2: every time. I can't believe it. And yet I can, because I was also that kid. I'm the kid that would have loved to have this time when I was that age.
1: Yeah. So something has resonated with me about your story And I wasn't sort of expecting it, but what I really heard from like you sharing how things sort of took place and happened for you is like you got your training in this, but then this is what you were doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you were writing Smile and you were putting it up on the internet for free. And I think that's such a lesson for both Steph and I, I mean, we sort of did the same thing with this podcast. We're like, we don't know what it is. We don't know what it's going to do for people. We've heard that it has been transformative for people have gone off and become educational therapists because of this podcast, which is wild, (laughs) wild. Part of our mission was to create awareness about what we do. And to think that it created awareness to the point that it changed someone's career trajectory is Mm -hmm. insane to us. But I would love for you to talk a little bit about your mindset when you're like, I'm just going to put this stuff out there yeah, and see what happens. Because I think it's brave and I think it's hard for people. It
2: is. And if you're starting out and you, you see where things can go, I think it's probably even harder because then you think, oh gosh, there's this huge hill I need to climb to get where so-and-so is. And I don't really know what the steps along the way to get there look like.
0: Mm-hmm. In
2: my case, I just, I had stories that I wanted to tell. And the way that I told them was to draw and to write them. And I did it for years. Just, I never showed anybody what I was doing. I just, I had like a diary that I put comics in and it was just me kind of illustrating all of my days and all of my thoughts and was scared to show them to people. But little by little, I started doing work that I could share with people and people really responded to it. And then by the time I was out of college and self-publishing, people were really responsive to it. And the thing they were most responsive to was these childhood stories that I was writing and publishing. And they were like, what? You know, we're really interested in like, you have a way of sharing that that's interesting and we want to see more of it. So maybe not having a clear path helped me to just just know that I could go home and do whatever it was that I was doing and it would be okay. And I didn't expect for this to be a career. I mean, I had a job, I had a day job that I was doing to pay my rent. And so I wasn't looking at it as like, this is going to be the thing and it's going to make me this much money and I'm going to be able to quit my job. And, you know, I was like, well, maybe someday I'll be able to be an artist and make a living at it. But I didn't really know what that looked like. It's tricky if people say, well, I want to be the next Raina. It's like, you can't follow the same set of steps that I followed because my steps were personal to me. You kind of have to just follow your own steps and do what it is that you do. And that makes you feel happy. All I knew was that making comics made me feel good. And so it was just, it was like the way that I wound down at the end of the day. So I've I've heard this advice given many times in many different ways, but it's like, look at what you do when you're killing time. What is it that you do? And... (laughs) Thing that I do when I'm killing time is I read recipes online and in cookbooks. Like, I spend a lot of time just reading about food. So it's like, okay, well, if the comics thing doesn't work out, what would I do? I guess I'd be a recipe tester or I'd write a food journal catalog comic or something. I don't know. Just <laughs> <laughs> so that was what making autobiography comics used to be for me. And then I got very, very, very fortunate that it panned out the way that it did. But I think it's really about being true to yourself, what's going on inside and not trying to fit it into a box that somebody else has created before you. The box that I could have templated myself to be would be a newspaper strip cartoonist who's doing a gag every day, which did not really work for me. Or I could have gone into like superhero comics, which were also pretty popular, but just which were never quite my jam. I'm not really sure why those were the options. And I didn't want to do either of those things. So I had to kind of figure out what I did and not worry about whether it was going to be like a financial success. My parents were not okay with that, by the way. I mean, Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. My dad was like, go to San Francisco State, get an English degree. And I was like, why? Uh, (laughs) How is that going to help? I don't know. I think that's what he did. So that just made sense to him. I think he could see that like I wanted to write stories and that I wanted to tell stories somehow and that I was interested in literature, but I wasn't interested in like what a college literature program would have offered. I think now if somebody was like, we're going to offer a major in graphic novel literature. I'd be all over it, <laughs> but right. Well,
0: maybe you should teach that.
2: Oh, <laughs> I don't know if I would be the best teacher for something like that. Uh, You might surprise yourself.
1: Okay, 10 years from now, let's check in. Put it in the would-be-nice box. It's a nice
0: idea. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't have to be a right-now idea. But I think you talking about being outside the box is what all of our learners are trying to figure out. Yes. And we put so many kids with learning in a box, and it doesn't work that way. Right, Hearing your story and hearing you having to pave your own way is what our kids are going to be doing in their own way. When I have future reluctant readers, being able to sit there and give them your background is going to resonate with them, and they're going to feel connected to you, which is so important.
2: Yeah, that's nice. I like that there's a really direct connection to be made between the creator of something and the consumer of something.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: Thank you so much for your books and for taking the time. Yes. And for chatting with us today. We were both so excited because anything that can provide an access point for the learners that we work with is so special to us. And so that's why we try to highlight it on the podcast to try to raise more awareness. You know, this works for a lot of kids. And so give it a go go get Reina's books. Yeah. If people want to learn more about you and where they can find your books, what is the best way for them to do that, Reina?
2: I am go GoReina just about everywhere. So my website's GoReina.com. My Instagram is GoReina. My Twitter account is GoReina. I haven't been quite as active on social media for the last year, oddly. Some people have really expanded on social media during the pandemic. And I've kind of done the opposite where I'm like, you know, I feel like yeah. maybe I don't have as much to say right now, or maybe I'm just taking things in and kind of waiting for the stories to come. But that's where people can find me. And I'm going to give you an interesting tidbit, which is that today is something called hourly comic day. Okay. Every year on February 1st, cartoonists all over the world draw a comic for every hour of the day that they're awake. Oh, wow. So you guys are going to be in my hourly comic today. <laughs> so fun. Yeah. So I'm posting them as I go. I don't know exactly what your air date is, but today's February 1st. So at the point of airtime, you can go back to my Instagram, which is at Corina, and I'll have
1: all of them posted there. So fun. I'm going to go check that out. <laughs> I will too. <laughs> we'll Check that out. We'll share it. That's so cool. Can I ask one more question about you reading recipes at night? Yeah, I do the same thing. Do you save the recipes and then they ne- never make them? Because that's what I do.
2: Actually, I'm pretty good about good for you about it. And the other thing I really like doing in my spare time is making lists. <laughs> that sounds yeah really weird, but I'm such a planner. I think this is where I'm Christy from the Babysitters Club is that I'm always yeah. And so not having as much to plan during lockdown has been really challenging because I'm usually like, okay, what's happening this week and what you know trips do I have to go on and what sure just media am I doing? And what times am I going to be able to set aside to work? And you know, it's like this puzzle that I'm constantly shuffling and the puzzle has all but gone away during lockdown. So the only thing I have left is like, what am I going to eat for every meal of the day? (laughs) (laughs) So I have one that I just bookmarked on New York times cooking, which is kind of my go-to these days. And I'm like, all right, if I don't make it tonight, I'm going to make it tomorrow.
1: Do you use the paprika app? I do. I love that app. <laughs> I don't know this okay. app. It's great. Oh, it's great. You can
2: import just about any online recipe and then you can tailor it to say like if the recipe serves 6, you can say like I want to make it for 3 or I want to make it for 1 and it just automatically tells you like okay, it was supposed to be a tablespoon of, you know, sugar and now it's going to be a quarter.
0: Oh, I had no idea. I don't do
1: math,
2: so it's really helpful.
1: <laughs> I also like that as you add a recipe, you can cross it off as you go. Like as you add an ingredient, rather. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Steph, I feel like I've been holding out on you. Yeah, you definitely do have. Do you know what that app needs, Raina, that it doesn't have? It needs an ability to share recipes between other app users.
2: Yeah, I have a friend who like emails me links to things when she needs to. But you're right, there's not like an interactive component to it. I'll email Paprika and let them know. (laughs) I thought you were going to say it needs illustrations and comics. I was like, wait. (laughs) Sorry, you were about to tell an anecdote.
1: (laughs) You're going to say you're a friend. She will email me a recipe and it comes out all beautiful, but you're like, this isn't what I need. I need the original link so it can go into my paprika app, but there should be a way for her to just text it to me that way. Right. I've been saying for like a year, I'm going to email paprika. Today's the day.
0: You've known about this app <laughs> for this long and all of my quarantine cooking. Yeah.
1: No, I failed you. I feel really bad yeah, about it. Yeah, you really did. All right. Well, thank you, Reno, so much for joining us. Yes. Oh. Thank you. Will you do our designated ending, which is to say, have a great week, Smarties? Have a great week, Smarties.
0: (laughs) Yay. Have a great week.